Welcome to the Risky Healthcare Business Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from expert voices in and around the United States healthcare world with a mission to inform, educate, and help healthcare organizations and individuals ranging from one-doctor practices to large integrated systems and organizations throughout the dental, medical, and veterinary healthcare industry with risk, while hopefully having some fun along the way. I'm your host, Scott Nelson, a guy that grew up in Ohio and has been working all over the United States during my 20 plus year accounting career in the healthcare industry. With a commitment to accelerating healthcare performance through creativity, not just productivity. Let's dive in. Healthcare is a dynamic environment for real estate, and it's not just about location, location, location. For years now, and increasing in speed, medical care has been experiencing a physical transition of services from an inpatient setting to an outpatient setting to a virtual setting. Dental and veterinary care are having similar transitional experiences that include virtual care. Physical space is just one consideration in healthcare real estate. Real estate is usually a top expense for any healthcare business, but real estate threats are not only financial, which elevates the level of risk awareness required. And with lease or mortgage commitments of five, seven, 10 years, or maybe longer, there might not be room for error, which means risk management in healthcare real estate has become increasingly important. Today, we're speaking with Colin Carr, CEO of Carr, a healthcare real estate company with operations throughout the U.S. that provides commercial real estate services for healthcare tenants and buyers. During his career, Colin has been active in local, regional, and national real estate transactions involving landlords, sellers, tenants, buyers, and investors. Let's talk with Colin about risk in healthcare real estate. Colin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Before we begin talking about risk in healthcare, let's go back to the beginning. How did you get into healthcare and where you are today? So I took a little bit of a different path than most people. I uh, decided not to go to college. And my first like real job was managing apartment complexes at age 19. Got fascinated with real estate from there. And so I, I kept managing apartments for a few more years. Early 20s, I moved to Colorado from Michigan. And then I got my broker's license when I was 23. And I started working for a gentleman that did mostly large national retailers. So he did Walmarts, Wendy's, Blockbuster, like large retail tenants. I did that for a number of years, enjoyed it, but really wanted to work with individual business owners versus large you know, corporate conglomerates, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I, I moved firms and I started doing a lot more just, just office and uh, industrial use. And lo- long story short, a, a client that I did a bunch of industrial stuff with bought a medical office building and asked me to list it. So I started doing that, picked up a few more listings and then over the course of a, of a few years, I had done a pretty healthy amount of medical deals, mostly on the landlord side. And I had a couple transactions that just really stuck out to me or stood out to me that I remember vividly where I was working on the landlord's behalf and I had, I had a plastic surgeon deal, I had a dental deal, and I had an ENT deal. And in all three transactions, the doctors were unrepresented. They were trying to do their own deals themselves. Two were renewals, one was a new deal. And the outcome of all three of those transactions were the doctors got completely manhandled. They had no idea that they were getting overcharged by significant amounts of money. They left a ton of money on the table, like literally like $100,000 per deal on the table. They weren't capturing the free rent, the tenant improvement allowance. They were overpaying on lease rates. They were missing all sorts of other negotiations. 
And just for me, I just realized like, this is not really a fair fight. Like these doctors are getting completely just crushed in these deals. So for me, the light bulb came out that, Hey, the healthcare community needs representation for whatever reason, nobody was doing it in Colorado where I was located. The only people that were doing healthcare deals were on the landlord side. And so I just made a, a decision that I'm going to start doing a lot of tenant and buy a rep on the healthcare side. And I, I started making that move in 2008 and in 2009 decided to start our company now, which is called car. And we have grown over the last almost 15 years to being in over 40 some States now. And I think we have over 4,000 clients that we're actively doing work for, and it's exclusively tenant and buyer rep only in the healthcare space. So no conflicts of interest. And our only clients are the healthcare community. When you think about healthcare, your verticals kind of span. When I say healthcare, it goes medical uh, with the physicians, dental with the dentists and the dental specialties, and then veterinary services. Is that correct? Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So we do, we do the physician community. We do dental, veterinary, do a lot of optometry and vision. We do a lot of therapy as well too. So physical, occupational, a lot of behavioral health, we also do chiropractic and then we, you know, we have a whole segment that's, that's, I call it wellness or well-being. So, you know, med spas, fitness, acupuncture, anything that, that's wellness related falls into that bucket. So yeah, our, our world is healthcare related, wellness related. And, you know, our, our top focus is on helping our clients, healthcare providers maximize their profitability through real estate. And that's kind of maybe an unusual combination. Well, how do you get into maximizing profitability through real estate? But the reality is for most healthcare providers, real estate or their facilities costs typically are their second highest expense behind payroll. And you start getting into these leases or these purchases, and it's very easy to, to lose or gain a couple hundred thousand dollars in one transaction if you capitalize or if you miss out. So our, our focus is protecting healthcare providers' interests. Their practice is typically their largest or second largest, you know, asset, you know, as a whole or as a generalization. And then real estate, you know, comprises the second or third highest expense behind payroll typically. So a lot of money on the line. And if we do a great job, we can find them the best locations, the best properties, and then we can help them negotiate the most favorable terms, which, you know, impacts their profitability, puts more money in their pocket, gives them more flexibility, more freedom to make decisions for themselves and for their future. And that's, that's the game plan. I'd like to start our conversation by putting some framing in place. Real estate as a topic could mean different things to different people. So we'll not be discussing real estate strictly as a healthcare investment, such as a real estate investment trust or a REIT. I think about it broadly and include disciplines like architecture, design, construction, engineering, facilities, physical plant, and property management, among other things. Today, we're essentially talking about risk involved in leasing, buying, selling activities with the goal to inform and help with identifying potential risk points and how to anticipate and prepare. But first, Colin, from your perspective, what is and makes up the healthcare real estate market? So the healthcare real estate market is, is anything that's facility related to your practice. So it could be the actual, it could be the actual location that you're practicing in. It could be additional locations. You know, some types of practices have to have back-end offices or administrative offices, or they've got to have a satellite location that's near either a hospital system or on a hospital campus. So it's really anything that's facilities related to the practice, anything that's going to require you to have a lease agreement or for you to own the real estate. 
that could cover anything like a what people would typically think of as a standard doctor office, a standard facility, whether or not it's retail, medical office building, a hospital if, it, if it's medical in nature, but the same thing for dental or veterinary services. Yeah, I mean, it, it, inside of that, we've got, like you said, you've got the the medical office building, which is a building that's solely dedicated to medical. You have hospital campus properties. And then you get into, you know, retail where, you know, you could have like a Chipotle or a Starbucks, and then you could have a an urgent care or, you know, or a med spa, or you could have a dental office. So it could be retail, could be a power center, could be grocery anchored. So anything that's just drive up and walk into the space that has a sign. And then, you know, there's a lot of a lot of healthcare providers that, that choose to go into mixed use properties where it might be some healthcare, some office, it could be retail on the first floor, office on the second, residential on the third. I mean, there's all sorts of other variations of properties, but most healthcare providers are not located just in a healthcare only medical office building or hospital campus. They're typically co-tenants with other retailers or non-healthcare office tenants, et cetera. And that's, that's where the majority of healthcare providers find themselves. And as far as transaction types within this market, Primarily, is it leasing? So whether or not it's your first lease or a renewal lease and then buy and selling, predominantly, those are the majority of the transactions that are in healthcare real estate. Yeah. If you're if you're getting ready to transact as, as an occupant, so it's going to be for your practice, you're going to either be a tenant and you're going to be leasing or you'll be you know a buyer or a future owner and so you'll be purchasing. That being the case, though, the most conservative numbers that I see are that, you know, let's say less than 10% of all healthcare providers own their real estate. The most generous ones that I see, it's around 20%. So it's really driven by the market. You're going to find more people that own in markets that have land available for you to keep scaling and growing the city. So like if you're in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you can keep going further out and finding land, that's, that's one thing. If you're in Orange County, California, there's no more land. Like there's not mm-hmm. land to be had that's just waiting to be developed. So some markets ownership is higher than others, but you know I think the most consistent numbers that I see are ten to twenty percent of the most percentage of healthcare providers own their real estate. So you know you're, we're typically talking about leasing being the dominant transaction. Owning is a phenomenal way to build an additional asset to increase your net worth to pick up additional tax deductions, and that's available in most markets for most uses. But it's definitely the the minority transaction. Transitioning to risk and talking about what is risk in healthcare real estate, where is it, who is involved, and how to address it. Real estate, like you mentioned, is typically a big expense on the PL, which means there's potential for significant risk. As a healthcare real estate executive, how do you broadly think about risk in healthcare real estate and what is it to you and your work? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the to the, the economics, like you said on the PL, it's gonna affect cash flow, it's gonna affect profitability. It's going to determine how much you have to work to to net the same amount of money. And so if you go into a transaction and you overpay by a couple dollars per square foot because you weren't properly represented or you didn't have a real strategy and posture and, and you just found yourself in a place where you accepted the terms, you know, if, if you overpay by let's say three, four dollars a square foot on a couple thousand foot space, that equals you know, it, it could equal $1,000 a month real quickly. It could equal 12000 a year. It could equal 120000 over 10 years. And then you take the idea of, let's say you didn't get enough tenant improvement allowance and you have to borrow more money or you have to use more cash to pay for a build out or other costs. You start looking at all the different areas where you can lose or win money and it adds up to a couple hundred thousand dollars real quickly. And so if you capture that money, that, that's going to mean increased profitability, 
It means that you can work less hours to net the same amount. It means that you can reinvest money in a nicer location and more or better staff and more or better equipment and technology. You can put it more into marketing to grow the practice. So it gives you choices and freedom and it gives you leverage when you capture it. And on the flip side, when you don't capture that money, it, it means that you might have to have a leaner staff or pay people less or not hire as people as qualified of people as you like. It means you might have to choose an inferior location to what you'd ideally like to have, or that you can't invest in the marketing or the technology that you want. So really it's not just like, am I paying more? It's do I have to see an additional 40 patients per month or X number of patients per day or per week just to pay for the additional cost of the mistake that I made. And it truly is exponential. We're not trying to make more out of it than it is, but if you miss a negotiation deal point like the 10 improvement allowance and, and you leave tens of thousands of dollars on the table, it's not just that amount of money, it's how much you're paying in interest over the next 10 years that you could have avoided. And all these costs add up. Individually, someone might say, well, that's not that big of a deal. It's only $800 here, $500 here, 1000 there. But you start to add up those costs and it's pretty significant. Are there variations based on cycle time? When I'm saying cycle time, I'm thinking things such as career, business, or calendar. So for example, starting out with new space, whether or not you are starting a practice or you're in an existing practice that you're looking to grow or expand, and then you're transitioning through to retirement or sale and transitioning out of practice, how should risk be factored into a real estate decision based on time? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to risk, if you're looking at purchasing, there are a number of lenders across the country that are willing to do 100% financing, but that does mean that you're borrowing more. And so you need to make sure that you're not overpaying for the property or that you don't go upside down if the market cracks. If you are putting capital into a property, that's capital that you can't access typically. It's going to be locked in that property for a while. So I, I think really what it comes down to is like, if you're looking at buying real estate, can you see yourself in that property for the next 10 plus years? Is it gonna is it gonna affect your cash flow significantly to where if you have a you know if you had a tight month or two or things change in the economy are, are you gonna be upside down or in a bad position? And I think if the answer is is maybe or yes on those things, you, you need to be more careful that you don't you know give up your only source of of a nest egg or cash on hand or that you don't over lever yourself. If the answer is no, this doesn't affect my cash flow hardly at all. I can afford the building. It's not the only cash I have. I'm comfortable with where I'm at. I'm comfortable with where the practice is at. Then I think owning real estate's a, a phenomenal opportunity. And I, I don't care as much as far as where they're at in their career, whether they're you know five years in or, or they have five years left. For me, it's just the overall picture. If you have a doctor that says, hey, I'm going to probably sell my practice in you know three to five years, owning real estate's not off the table because the person who buys your practice, if you have a saleable asset is going to need that lease and, and mm -hmm. them signing up for a, a new 10 year or 12 year lease is going to be a contingency of, of them buying your practice. So if you're going to practice for, let's say maybe five more years, you're going to probably have a 20 year mortgage. You're going to get five years knocked out yourself. You sell the practice, make them sign a 10 year lease. Well, you've got three fourths of that asset paid off by the time, you know, that lease is up. So I'm great with people that are further in their career, even if they're getting ready to retire, still buying real estate because they're going to have a very saleable asset if it's done properly. And I'm also great with people early in their career buying real estate, but you've got to make sure that it's going to fit their needs for the next you know, 10 plus years. You, you do not want to buy real estate if you're a year or two in, if you think it's going to meet your needs for two or three years. 
you cannot get in and out of commercial real estate the same way you get in and out of residential real estate. It's much more expensive. It's much more cumbersome. And only a very, very small percentage of the business market wants your type of property where everyone needs a bedroom, needs a kitchen, needs a living room, a garage, et cetera. When, when you build out a space specialized for your practice, you're narrowing down who would be a potential buyer to a very small, you know, to a very small margin. So I know I'm giving you a mouthful there, but for me, it's not if you're young, it's not if you're old, it's really, you know, what is, what is your cash flow? What's your position? How comfortable are you financially? And then a bunch of other variables as we just described. This is a pitfalls and threats question. What real estate areas should be of concern to healthcare professionals and organizations? Where are the key areas to keep in mind and why is the risk in those areas? Recently, there's been a lot of talk about interest rates. I came up with several potentials to get us started and then add from there. You had mentioned leasing versus owning and some of the benefits and potential things to keep in mind in terms of years out in cash and leverage versus leasing versus owning. But in terms of a planning, and when I say planning, I'm thinking about approach and strategy and tactics, and then as well as a process, things such as you know searching for the, identifying the space, touring the space, inspecting the space, going all the way through negotiation or offering negotiation, and then closing. What are some pitfalls and some threats within that piece right there? And then why is that a factor? Yeah. So let me, let me start with the first one as far as interest rates. Interest rates are definitely a lot higher today than they were a year ago or two years ago, et cetera. If you look at interest rates as where they stand now over the last 20 years, we've actually been here before. So they're, they're way higher today than they were last year. If your paradigm is the last five years, then yes, they feel like they're you know several times higher and they are. But if you go back to people that were doing deals in 2007 or eight or early 2000s, they were seeing the same rates that we're seeing right now. So it's all relative. What I'm telling people right now is if you find the right property to purchase, rates should not stop you from buying because the reality is like a lot of things, you're going to refinance. You Will you pay more today than you will maybe in two years? Most likely because most likely rates will come back down again, but you shouldn't avoid purchasing the right asset if you find it and if you can make the transaction happen just because the rates are higher, yes, you'll pay more now, but you should be able to refinance. And that's been the constant theme over the last 15 plus years. When it comes to, you know, if you're doing a lease, if you're if you're doing a practice loan, same thing, you're going to have higher rates today. But if you ask most people that started a practice or bought real estate in 2007 and say, do you regret that? Do you wish you would have waited seven more years for the rates to go down or five more years? Most of those people that I know, because I was doing deals back then, would say, absolutely not. I, I, there's no reason I should have waited or, or not transacted. And it was, you know, hindsight was it, it was a phenomenal time to do something. And then, yeah, I just refinanced a few years later. So rates could stop you from being able to afford it. They could stop you from being able to make the margins, or the ratios. If that's the case, it is what it is. But I, I don't see rates being a pitfall right now. They're not as ideal as they were a year ago, but there's still transactable rates and it's still relatively relatively normal if you were to look at other seasons we've been through in the past 20 years. Going on to the next topic, as far as where do we see healthcare providers making mistakes, I, I could hit a, a couple really quickly. I'll, I'll list them and then we can break them down. A lot of healthcare providers make the, the, the mistake of trying to do it themselves. They, they ask the question, well, you know, can I go find a property? Can I call on properties? Can I negotiate? The answer to every one of those is, well, of course you can. You're capable of using a phone and you're capable of sending an email or marking up a document. 
but that doesn't mean it's a good choice. So doing it yourself is the top mistake healthcare providers make. The next one is they don't go into transactions with a real strategy or posture. They're just kind of winging it. And then couple with that is they're not typically negotiating on three or four properties simultaneously. So second issue is no strategy, no posture, and they don't they don't go at the transaction the way that the you know professional companies and Fortune 500 companies go after it. And then the third thing I would tell you that they do very often is they don't time the transactions properly. They start way too early or way too late, and that that is a posture killer as well. So all three of those get fixed when you fix the first one. You hire professional representation. You don't do it yourself. But when you start out a transaction doing it yourself, you typically make like another three or four mistakes that just continually weaken your position step by step. So happy to break any of those down further, but those are the top three that I see providers making. They had the timing as, uh, as a question I was going to ask here in a second in terms of when should somebody start, whether or not it's just coming to a decision and saying like, okay, yes, we're looking to transact a real estate deal or they're looking to actually act on that and, and move into that process. So what does that kind of look like? What, what is too early and what is too late uh, to begin thinking about something like that? Sure. So, so too early is going to be any time frame where the landlord doesn't have a real risk of losing you as a tenant. Like for instance, let's say that you signed a 10-year lease and you've got three years left. And then you say, well, I'm trying to cut my overhead. And you go to your landlord and try to renegotiate. The, the question you have to ask yourself is what's the motivation of the landlord to voluntarily reduce their cash flow, their income, and just give you free money by lowering your lease rate. Like there's zero motivation there. And, and again, I don't mean this disrespectful, but a lot of times if you're, if you're not in the industry, it just doesn't make sense. And so you just, you, you go about things in a manner to which it makes sense to you, but to nobody else going to a landlord and asking them to like give you money for a renovation or to lower your lease rate three years before your lease expires. I mean, you're literally just saying, would you please give me free money for no reason besides I'm asking you to do it. And I mean, this is the equivalent of someone walking up to you as a healthcare provider saying, hey, would you give me $50,000? You'd say, well, why would I do that? You say, well, because I'm asking you. Mm-hmm. Your response would be, well, no, that's, that's a really bad reason. So if you're too far in advance and there's not a fear of the landlord losing you, then you're not going to get anything meaningful. Or if they do give you something meaningful, like, yeah, I'll give you a lower lease rate. I'll do this and do that. They're going to be capturing on the back end. They're going to be locking up you know, a longer lease. Or, or capturing some benefit to where they're still winning and, and you're getting the illusion of savings, but you're probably going to end up paying way more. The right time frame, if you're getting ready to renew your lease, is typically around 12 months. That's the, the time frame where you have enough time to relocate, to go find other properties, negotiate, design them, build them out, et cetera. And at that point, the landlord has to start marketing your space because your space is going to sit vacant even if you move out. And it's a great space. It'll still sit vacant typically for six months to a year before it gets released. So at that at that time frame, that 12-month window, typically, landlords have the reality that if they don't come with a good deal or if you truly are looking at other properties and you have a real posture and you have a real strategy, that they could be losing a ton of money if you vacate their space. It could cost them two, three times as much money to release that space between downtime, build-out periods, free rent, all the costs that go into doing a deal. If they don't make your deal, they could end up in a place where it costs them two to three times the amount of money to make your deal versus you know making the next deal. So that's the time frame where landlords are more aware of, hey, I don't want to mess this deal up or miss this. And if the tenant truly has other options and they're getting ag- aggressive with other landlords or sellers, I've got to come to the table with a real offer. 
Now, that's, again, predicated upon having representation, having a real strategy, having a real posture. If you're the tenant, you just say, hey, send me, a, send me an offer. What are you willing to do? Well, that just says to the landlord, by the way, I have no clue what I'm doing. Like, mm-hmm. Very important keywords here. Like, if you're a tenant and you're getting ready to renew your lease and you say, send me an offer, you have just told the landlord, I have no clue what I'm doing and I'll probably take whatever, whatever you give me. Like, sophisticated tenant that's been to the market that's looked at three or four or five other properties that's negotiating with three or four other landlords doesn't say send me an offer. They say, I'll send you an offer and here's the terms that you're going to have to match or meet if you want to consider having me stay as a tenant. I already have three or four properties I'm not going to be taken advantage of. I, I don't care what you think's market. I'll tell you what's market based upon my other options. And so terminology gets really important. So, but original question, time frame. Typically, 12 months in advance is the sweet spot. An alternative time frame is if you're looking at buying a piece of ground and building your own building, developing your own property, you've got to start that process 18 to 24 months in advance because it takes 18 to 24 months to build your own building, believe it or not. It's just the time frame it takes, yeah. you know, commercial development. So if that's the case, then your posture is I've got an option to buy a piece of ground, develop my own property. And and this, you know, this ship is leaving the harbor very soon. So you either have a chance to renew me now and, and capitalize, or I'm going to go buy a piece of ground. And once that happens, you, you're not going to get me back. I'm going to be too committed to the next deal. And so you're going to have a vacant space coming one way or the other. So 12, 12 months, ideally, unless it's new construction, then it's 18 to 24 months. You had mentioned terms and terminology, which is actually something I had on my paper to ask you about. And because there are two specific ones that always seem to come up in my conversations. The first one is triple net. And that's always my example when you brought up the point about doing it themselves versus having an advisor. Triple net is always the one that I always use an example to say, this is one that you need the experts. You need the advisor who does this on a regular basis. The other one is typically with clients or potential clients that I have that are going through a sale transaction. And if they have a lease, whether or not it's a first lease or a renewal lease, personal guarantees seems to be one that nobody's ever happy about. And it's one that we have a lot of conversations about. So those are two typical ones that come up in conversations for me. Are those big ones that you see as ha- people having issues or having to address? Uh, are there others that you usually like to highlight or have people include or factor into their deals? Yeah. So there's there's a lot of terminology that comes up that we could hit on, but I think those are two great ones to, to camp on for a minute. So let's talk about that. The, the first one, triple net, and the triple net stands for three different forms of net, 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 net. The three nets stand for property taxes, property insurance, and then either common area maintenance or the operating expenses. And essentially, if we break this down, it's very simple. These are the costs of what it takes to run a property outside of a landlord's mortgage or other costs of like commissions or attorney's fees. These are the costs of what it means to own the property and run the property. So property taxes, property insurance, and then operating expenses. So what that means essentially is that the landlord takes all of the, the line item expenses to run the property, snow removal, utilities, landscaping, you know, lighting, elevator maintenance, anything it takes to run the property, and they break it down, and then you pay your proportionate share of those expenses. And when I say proportionate, it's, it's based upon the amount of square footage that you're occupying. So if you wanted to use like super, super simple numbers, if we had a 20,000-foot building 
and you were in 2,000 square feet, you would represent 10% of the property, you'd be paying 10% of the operating expenses. So there's nothing wrong with a triple net lease. Where people come up with issues or, or they have heartburn on these deals is they didn't know what was their responsibility versus the landlord. So mm-hmm. there's, there's not a, you don't run from a triple net lease. That's the dominant type of lease. But the, the biggest thing is you just have to know what you're expected to do or pay for and what the landlord is expected to do or pay for. And if you clarify those things ahead of time, um, there's nothing wrong with that. Another thing that, that comes into play with a triple net lease, and this is not um, a constant, but it, it's there, is some triple net leases have you paying for all utilities. Some have you paying for some utilities. Some have you paying for your janitorial. Some has it included. And so again, it just gets back to expectations. What are you paying for? What is the landlord paying for? And if you define those concepts ahead of time, you'll be in good shape. One other question that comes up is people say, well, should we negotiate the triple net? And the answer is it's not really a negotiable deal point. Mm-hmm. If you have a landlord that has a multi-tenant property with, with 10 tenants in it, they're not going to give you a different lease form than the other 10 or nine are paying. You just, again, you just have to know what you're getting into. Lease structure is very important, whether it's triple net, whether it's full service, whether it's modified gross. I, I would tell you this, you don't need to spend a lot of time becoming an expert on all the lease types. What you need to know is what am I expected to pay for? What's the landlord going to pay for? What happens if something breaks? Like if the HVAC goes out, who's paying for that? If they need a new parking lot, am I paying for it or a proportionate share of it? And it's more important to simply just define who does what and with circumstances. And then that way you're not blindsided. You, you, can, you can prepare for those things in advance. We've talked about landlord and tenant. In terms of stakeholders and actors that are typically involved, how do they or how can they address risk in those roles? And then part of that is though, who should be involved when you're talking about people that are potentially doing this themselves? Who are the stakeholders and the actors that should be involved to make sure the risk is addressed? I have in mind roles such as the lessor and the landlord and the lessee and the tenant, the buyer, the sellers, the main players, and supporting functions like agent, attorney, architect, but there could be others such as financial institutions. What are your thoughts? Yeah, so let let me couple this question with with something you mentioned a second ago, personal guarantees as well, because typically the personal guarantees are, are going to go directly to only the owners, but th- this plays a major role in it. So let's let's start with personal guarantees and I'll roll into the, the second part of that question. People do get tripped up with personal guarantees, and then you're gonna have a lot of attorneys that say, Well, you shouldn't personally guarantee it. I, I agree. In an ideal world, you wouldn't have to have a personal guarantee. But here's the questions that I would ask you as a consumer. Can you get an auto loan without a personal guarantee? And the answer is no. Can you get a student loan without a personal guarantee? No. Can you get a mortgage from a reputable lender without a personal guarantee? No. Can you get a credit card? without? So you get my point. Yep. Anytime someone's extending you credit or value, you're going to guarantee it. Again, look at look at the fine print on your credit card, your mortgage, your auto, your student loan. You go, I don't care what you're buying. If you're buying a timeshare in financing, and if you're financing an airplane or an RV, or it doesn't matter what you're doing, you are signing on the dotted line. Even if you put your company's name on it, it's coming back to you personally. There's not any bank out there, unless it is a huge group practice that's been operating for a very long time with a considerable number of owners that's not looking for somebody to put a personal guarantee on there. So it's the same in real estate. 
if a landlord is going to give you, you know, a five or seven or 10 year lease, the question is, what is the value of that lease? So let's just say it's a million dollars. Well, they're giving you a million dollar loan. You're going to pay them back over a 10 year period or five year period monthly, but they've given you a million dollars of credit. And then especially if they're going to be giving you money to build out the space or free rent, just realize this is a loan, all right? It's structured as a lease. It's structured as a rent payment, but it, it is truly a loan. So don't be, don't be dismayed by a personal guarantee. And, and if you have an attorney say, well, you shouldn't personally guarantee it, ask them if they would give anybody a million dollars of credit and not ask for a personal guarantee. They would say there's no way they would do that. And so let's not have a double standard there. Let's not kill deals over over personal guarantee when it's very common. A better approach would say, can we limit the personal guarantee or can I get it removed after I've proven that I'm worth the risk or I've given you enough value? That's a much better approach than just trying to get rid of a personal guarantee. Removing a personal guarantee is going to kill the vast majority of deals unless you're a large like private equity-based group or your large multi-doctor group that's got a huge track record and a big financial statement, that's a different story. But individual, you know, one or two owner practice, you're going to have a personal guarantee. So questions are, who's going to personally guarantee it? It's going to be the owners. It's going to be the people that are making the decisions. And so that one's coming up. The, the biggest thing to know with personal guarantees, if you're selling your practice, that gets into what we call an assignability clause. If you have a lease and you think you might want to sell your practice or even just to protect you, even if you're not thinking about that, you still want to get an assignability clause, which gives you the right to assign the lease interest to someone who would buy your practice or who you transfer your practice to. And then you've got to go one step further with the assignability clause. You have to have a trigger or a mechanism to get off that lease. And a lot of people have been fooled by this. Like, well, I have an assignability clause, but the assignability clause doesn't say a thing about you being removed. And so landlords will hold selling doctors hostage and say, sure, you can sell it, but you're going to stay on the lease for the next three years, or you're going to pay me a big fee to get off. And so that's where a lot of people get tripped up. So you need an assignability clause and you need to have a trigger to get off that lease. And then that, again, that ties into the personal guarantee. So summary here, you're going to personally guarantee most leases. You're better to try to limit the guarantee to like, let's say maybe the first five years of a 10-year lease, or after you've paid a certain amount of money, it, it goes down each year. Or your maximum out of pocket, you know, liability goes down each year that you pay down on the lease. That's a better game plan, in my opinion. So going to your your next question, like you know, who are the stakeholders? You you got you have the landlord. They've got partners. They've got financial backers. But it's typically that who, who is the main person for the landlord? The lenders are usually behind the scenes. You're not going to have any interaction with the landlord's lender hardly ever, unless there's a refinance, unless you sign a document or they get a new loan. Simply just the landlord, and it's going to be just you. Each party is going to have attorneys to protect them. Each party is going to have CPAs behind the scenes, but they're just—they're not getting involved in the deals. Typically, it's usually—it's—it's it's the—it's the principal owner of the practice dealing with the with, with the landlord's representative or the landlord's you know primary point of contact. Each parties have legal. Each parties have lenders. Each parties have you know CPAs and so forth. But those people are usually only getting filtered through the principal. And it's, it's usually landlord versus tenant, and that's it. And from your example and your conversation about the personal guarantees, would I be correct or would you agree with, with me stating that an agent and an attorney are incredibly important roles or positions for the tenant at any point in time because of things such as an assignability clause? 
Absolutely. So you know, you, you do need both in a transaction. That's another misunderstanding or another mistake that healthcare providers make. They'll say, well, I'm, I'm not going to use a real estate agent because I have an attorney. The landlord knows the attorney is not a market expert in real estate and that they deal with the legal points, not the economic negotiations. And then you'll see people make the, the other side of the coin mistake, which is they'll say, well, I'm not going to hire an attorney because I've got an agent and they see contracts all the time and they can just tell me what's going on. And that's a really bad decision too, because real estate agents or brokers are not legally allowed to give legal advice if they're not an attorney. And that's what happens. If a, if a broker or an agent looks at a lease and starts giving you advice, they're practicing law. That's, that's something they're allowed to do. They'll, they'll lose their real estate license for that if it's reported and it's true. But also, even if it wasn't, like you don't want you don't want a real estate agent giving you legal advice, just like you don't want a real estate attorney, you know, telling you what a market lease rate is or a market TI allowance is. You, you want both parties. The real estate agent, you're not going to pay them if you're a tenant or buyer. Commissions are paid by the landlord or the seller, just like in residential real estate. You should not be paying your agent if you are an, an occupier space. If you're a tenant or buyer, healthcare provider, the listing agent is going to give that that agent half the commission, or the landlord will pay them half the commission. But you're not coming out of pocket for that person. You will, however, pay your attorney, but you're going to pay them a reasonable amount of money to protect your interest. So people say, well, what's a reasonable amount of money? Depends on the complexity of the deal. Depends on how many questions you have. Depends on how how you know clean or unclean the lease is when you first get it. But typically, it's going to be you know a couple thousand dollars, maybe maybe five six thousand dollars at at the most on a lease purchase contract could be you know four or five thousand up to ten thousand dollars depending on how complex it is. But you just have to look at it as this is an insurance policy. Like nobody wants to pay an insurance policy until they have a claim like nobody wants to pay like four or five thousand dollars a year to insure their house you know until you have a pipe break and then you know you need a hundred thousand dollars for a new basement and that's that's when it comes into play you're going to be in this lease for five seven ten years maybe 20 years if you're new pay a couple thousand dollars for a really good real estate attorney to protect your interests and to make sure that you're mitigating risk at the highest level hopefully nothing comes into play and if nothing comes into play then that means your attorney probably did a good job how should risk be planned for in real estate? So what have you learned from your experiences and how do you approach risk in your work? So thinking if a doctor or healthcare organization is looking to lease, buy or sell real estate, what are one, two or three actions they can do to decrease risk? Going through some of the examples that you, you touched on already, is there a way to kind of plan and approach so that you may be able to make sure that you can strengthen vulnerabilities that you may be open to? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we, we've had a couple and I'll hit those quickly, but you should have a good real estate attorney review any purchase contract or a lease agreement and try to, you know, try to try to eliminate the landlord having more access to you than you should or you having more liability than you should as a tenant. So good real estate attorney is one. Number two, you should be properly insured. Like there's just you can't get around it. You've got malpractice insurance, stuff like that on the practice side, but you need to also have personal content insurance. You need to have you need to have other forms of insurance. Like for instance, if if there's a huge rainstorm, like in, in Denver, we just had we've had literally like a month of, of monsoons almost every day. It's the highest rainfall we ever we've seen in, in decades in May and June's following suit. Well, I don't care how how new or old the building is, the roofs are leaking like crazy. You put a you put four or five inches of rain on a roof on a flat building, it's gonna leak in most scenarios. So, you know, if if water comes into your space and blows out some technology, are you insured? You might say, well, I don't have any 
any loans on this technology, it doesn't matter. You need a proper insurance. So that's a big one. And then ultimately, I think I think one of the best insurances you can get or the best protections is having representation. It's knowing what are the top properties that are available. Should I lease? Should I purchase? Could I could I have paid a lot less if I would have capitalized on this deal? That's not this is the same thing as having an insurance policy, but if you do it right in advance, it's going to protect your interest. It's going to save you a lot of time. It'll save you a lot of money. A, a good agent will help avoid all sorts of pitfalls and complications and delays that people that do it themselves uh, encounter on a regular basis. And it's like anything else. I mean, it, you know, why would a patient come to a healthcare provider? Well, they're, they're, you're trying to eliminate an issue. You're trying to recover faster. You're trying to stop bad habits or behaviors that maybe you don't even know that you're doing, or you're trying to you know, eliminate a life-threatening issue. I mean, a patient could say, well, I'll just wing it and figure it out myself. Like, sure, you can do that, but that's not best practice. Best practice is, is, is go to the person that's trained and specialized in the area of healthcare that you have a need or a desire to see a change in. It's the same thing in real estate. It's you can self-diagnose and figure it out yourself, but that's probably not the best game plan, especially if it's a serious health issue. And with commercial real estate, it's a serious financial issue. Like it's not it's not a matter of like if you overpay on buying a box of rubber gloves, you'll just try to get a better price next month. You typically only get one crack at the apple like every five, seven, or ten years if it's a lease. And if it's a purchase, you're probably doing it once maybe in your career or maybe once every 15, 20 years. So you know, I, I think best practices there are just do it right the first time, hire representation, and and try to avoid the the obvious pitfalls that people that are just kind of floundering through the process encounter on a regular basis. Looking back through recent history from a risk standpoint, what was expected versus unexpected in healthcare real estate? And what could have been done differently, whether or not we're looking at occupancy rates, a different type of delivery model that healthcare businesses and healthcare providers are beginning to deliver now. What were some of those potential issues or some of those unexpected issues and what could have been done differently? Yeah, I think, again, I think it comes down to just knowing who's responsible for what, like if you're in a multi-tenant office building and the HVAC goes out, like the landlord's supposed to be paying for that. If you're in a retail center and you have your own individual storefront, you're probably responsible for that HVAC unit, whether, whether you like it or not. Well, you need to have that inspected before you lease the space. If you're going into a retail center and it's a 20-year-old center and it's the original HVAC unit and it's on its last leg and you don't have it inspected and that thing goes out you know, six months into your lease, your lease probably says you're responsible for it. So that should have been addressed or figured out ahead of time. So looking at property inspections, getting people inside the space to determine, do you have enough power? That's a big one. People will assume there's enough power. They'll get into a space, start designing it. And then the GC will get the electrician in there and they'll say, there's there's no more room in the panel. Or even though the panel says you have 200 amps coming into the space, you don't. <laughs> and there's no more power coming into the building. And so you need to then get a hold of the utility company and upgrade the panel for $50,000 or whatever the number is. So you know, due diligence ahead of time is, does the space have, the, have enough water? Is, is the water tap large enough? Does it have enough power? who's responsible in case the HVAC goes up. There's just things like that that you can do ahead of time in your due diligence that will help you. You know, outside of that, I mean, you just have to hope for the best. And that's not like a, just a whatever will be, will be, but you could sign a lease and then the market could go down and, and you might have a, a leisure that's higher than market, but you don't control that. You could also sign a lease and the market could skyrocket or spike, which is what's happened in the last couple of years. 
you know, rates today are still way higher than they were four or five years ago. And so if you signed a lease four or five years ago, you're probably in a much better place than people that are signing leases today. That's the market. So you do the best you can with what you're faced with, with what's available currently. And then really the, 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 common, the common theme, which I keep saying is it's due diligence, it's preparation, it's hiring qualified partners and partnerships to make sure that, that you're doing the best you can to eliminate problems or at least to cut them off in the past. With the idea of, of interest rates and you know looking at them back four or five years ago, people are thinking about if they're looking into transact something today, if they're looking forward during this next year, maybe even beyond, what are some things that they could potentially entertain or you see as a potential issue in that healthcare real estate transaction and how those individuals and organizations could anticipate and be prepared? Well, one of the questions that comes up with rates right now, people say, well, should I be buying down my rate or you know, how do I time it properly? And you can look at what the Federal Reserve has said they're going to do. I mean, they, they decided not to raise rates you know, a few days ago, but they did say that they're probably going to be doing two more quarter point increases. So you, know, you can assume that, that the Federal Reserve rate is going to go up, which is going to affect your loan interest rate. But again, I don't think anybody assumes that rates are going to stay this, at this level for more than a certain period of time. So you might have to have a higher interest rate and then refinance it in two or three years. The question of like, should I buy down, you know, my, my rate and so forth? For me, that's a great question. And, and I can give a very simple answer. It's, it's how long will it take you to break even on the cost of buying down the rate versus just keeping it higher? And so like, for instance, again, just use super simple math. If, if it costs you $10,000 to buy down the rate, and then you're going to break even on that $10,000 investment in year two, you know, what are the odds that you would want to refinance it for two years? Or what are the odds that it would go beyond there? That's where you get into, should I do it now? Should I do it, should I do it later? Each of those questions requires like a specialized like, evaluation of all the other factors there. If you could break even in, in six months, like great, that's kind of a no brainer. So take you three and a half years to break even. I'd say keep the money in your pocket and hope that you're going to refinance within side three and a half years, you know, keep the cash, pay more per month, but don't pay it all up front. So again, I think interest rates are just part of the equation. It's like, what if reimbursement rates are lower this year than they are next or last year? It's, you just have to do the best you can with what you have. And, and then you're going to do what everyone else does, which is constantly reevaluate, constantly adjust, and, and you're going to pivot multiple times. Well, that's a great point to conclude our conversation. Colin, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts and experiences today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Risky Healthcare Business Podcast. You can listen to all episodes from the Resource Center page of the Spring Parker website, springparker.com, or click the listen link in the show notes to listen and subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And remember, Accelerating healthcare performance is achieved through creativity, not just productivity.